Good job. Romans chapter 14. You know, we've been in this series called Gospel-Centric Living as we've gone through the book of Romans. And again, we're in, this, we're in a very practical section right now. We're in a section where, you know, that I think really describes and defines how we're to live our lives before the Lord. And this is kind of a, uh, an exciting section if you haven't read it before. Even though some of the specific examples are rather confusing, as we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. So, if I could get the, can I get the verse on the board, Cole? Can you be my man? Awesome, thanks. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And the next one, please. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And it is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And again... Let the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have read your word, and every time we read your word, we thank you, God, that you have not left us alone, that you have not left us without hope, that you have not left us without guidance and without instruction. And Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would move by the power of your spirit to plant your word in our hearts, that we would hear your voice, that we would understand your will and that our hearts and our minds would be conformed to it. We ask all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So the next couple of weeks, as we kind of go through 14 and 15, we're looking at a matter of conscience. And, you know, the, the specific examples that we see seem kind of funny to some of us. We're talking about the, the weak and the strong. We're talking about vegetarians and carnivores. We're talking about people that think Sunday is like the most important day of the week, a lot more than anyone else, any other day. And another group of people that think, hey, every day is really important to the Lord. And this is a little confusing for us. And, and clearly Paul knew the situation he was writing to, and clearly the people he wrote to knew what he was talking about. But, but for us, we've got to do a little reconstruction if we're going to come to a right understanding of this text. So, so let's just start by saying what the text is not talking about. This text is not an argument 
for eating meat any more than the book of Daniel with Daniel's fast is an argument for being a vegetarian. The text is not talking about, hey, to say Sunday is not important at all. It's not doing that either. And, and, and so we're going to reconstruct a little bit of what specifically is going on that gives rise to this. It's a matter of conscience. We, we see a spark of division has, has opened up in this church, in the church in Rome. We have two groups of people, the strong and the weak. And the strong are the group of people, as he, you, you could probably infer, that they say, wow, we can eat whatever we want, whenever we want, e- eating's okay. They're the group of people that says, hey, every day is significant. And then the weak group of people, as he puts them, are the people that say, no, well, we, we, we really can't eat a lot, you know, we, we can't eat meat, we've just got to eat vegetables, and gosh, Sunday is more significant. And we really need to honor the Sabbath is more significant than the other days. So we've got the strong and the weak. Now, a lot of us, we get excited. We think strong. You know, if I said, do you want to be strong? I don't think anyone would say no. I really don't want to be strong. I really want to. We tend to think of strong and weak in terms of class, right? Someone is stronger, they're better. Someone is stronger, they're more significant. Someone is stronger, maybe they're more enlightened. Someone is weaker, well, hey, they're the guy we don't want to be, right? That's what we think. And that's not how Paul is talking about it here. Peter, the apostle Peter, would be a good example of a person with a weak conscience. And I use Peter intentionally, because if I asked you, would you like to be like the apostle Peter and have his kind of faith, I think most people would say, Yes. Yeah, Peter's an excellent example of someone who, according to Paul's dynamic here, would have a weak conscience at one point in his life and in his faith. Because Peter had this, had this problem that almost every other person who was a Jew and converted to Christianity would have. He, he had a significant problem, which again, dispels this idea of the strong and the weak being like a matter of one better than the other, as we're going to tease out. So if you were a Jew living for after the law was given all the way up through the coming of Jesus Christ, you would probably read the, you know, the book of Leviticus where God, God lists different kinds of food. And God lists what he calls clean foods and unclean foods. And God says, you can eat the clean foods, don't eat the unclean foods. There was a lot of good food that you couldn't eat. Shellfish was right out, according to the book of Leviticus. A lot of different kinds of meat and other kinds of fish were right out. And so so the Jews had to walk around, if you were trying to faithfully follow the law, thinking, I can't eat this, I can't eat that. I can't eat this, I can't eat that. And it wasn't a matter of like, you know, whatever, you know, the Atkins diet said. It was a matter of theology rather than physiology, okay? It was a matter of this is what I need to do to be faithful to my God. But what would happen? Imagine the stress you might have. You're trying to be the faithful Jew, and you go to the lunchroom cafeteria, and there's a little sign there that says, Mystery Meat. What is that? I can't even identify it. We've been to some people's houses where we've been there. I don't know what that is, but I feel like I need to eat it to be polite. Some, it, it, so, so what some Jews we know from history would do would be they'd say, you know what? I don't want to take the chance of accidentally sinning. Actually, a mature choice if you think about it. I don't want to take the chance of accidentally sinning. So you know what? I'm just going to be a vegetarian. 
I'm just not going to eat any meat or fish. For me, it's more important to honor the Lord. I don't want to take that chance. Now note, that's not something that Scripture told them they had to do. But it's something that out of a matter of conscience, they said, I'm going to be more conservative so that I don't fall. That And so Peter, we see, if you read the book of Acts, you see Peter was that way. God has to like shake Peter up inside down the head for Peter to realize in the book of Acts, I can eat meat now that Jesus has come. I can eat food that I thought was unclean now that Jesus has come. Shrimp is in. Like, like God had to really shake Peter around to get him to realize that. And so now... Notice, this isn't a matter of strong and weak like we tend to think of it. Because if it was, if, if, what, um, if what they were doing was bad and weak in the derogatory sense we generally use it in, don't you think Paul would say, come out of that? Stop doing that? Refrain from that? But he doesn't say that. He says, hey, strong guys, except the weak people. Weak people, except the strong people. Dwell together. Paul doesn't hold back. If, if, if weak implied less, Paul would have said, stop doing it. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does at all. So, so imagine if you spent like 35, 40 years, you spent your whole life, whether it was just 15 years of your life or 50 years of your life saying, I can only eat these foods so I don't fall into sin. And then all of a sudden you're told you have freedom in Christ. You can eat whatever you want. Can you imagine how that might be bother you a little bit? Like you're excited that you can go and load up on the lobster tails, and you're excited that you can eat the unclean meat, but you'd probably be like, gosh, I was told for 30 years I couldn't eat this. And it's great that now what I can, but, but you might have a sense of, of, of trouble in doing it. Well, that's what's going on in the, in, in the lives of these, the, the background of the people that Paul's writing to. They've been given freedom to do something, but... Some of them are struggling to take hold of that freedom. It's bothering them. People do this all the time. We, all the time, there are things that are a matter of conscience. Not a matter of sin, a matter of conscience. That one believer says, I feel like I can do this totally freely. And another believer says, I can't do that. You know, um, we we were kind of reminded of this. You know, we had our last year, last January, Trinity, we had our first ever elder retreat. And so we go away to this retreat center down in Norwalk, and it's a Catholic retreat center, and Friday night dinner rolls around, and they serve us fish. And we're all sitting there thinking, and all of a sudden it dawns, you know, throughout much of the last, you know, the century, if you grew up Catholic, like I know my parents did, or my father did, you never ate meat on Fridays. You never ate meat on Fridays. There's no verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not eat meat on Fridays. But a lot of people, Catholics, didn't out of matter of conscience, because they said, Well, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. I don't want to eat any meat on a Friday. That's the way I honor him. Not a verse, but a matter of conscience. In my last church, we had this guy. He was uh, in a heavy metal band before he got saved. And he was like a well-known heavy metal band. He, you know, they, they've put out CDs and stuff. He has his own genre that he started of punk heavy metal music, right? He, and a lot of his music before he was a believer was intentionally, intentionally written to be an offense to God. So he was intentionally writing lyrics to basically tell God how miserable he was. And so he gets saved at about 40. And all of a sudden he comes forward and, and he's got all these musical gifts. 
And there was this long period of time where he said, I can't play music. I can't play. I mean, professional. He would have been the best person we had on our worship team musically. He said, I can't play music for now. Because music, every music when I play is associated with telling God how miserable he is. And I just need some space. He then went on, you know, and then you know, he, said, he said, you know, I can't listen to any heavy metal music. It doesn't matter if it's Christianized heavy metal music, if it's by a Christian band. Because every time I hear it, I think of where I used to be. He goes, and so for him it was a matter of conscience. He said, I, I can't do it. You know, the same way, I, heard a, I was listening to a pastor speak recently, and, and he's speaking to his church, and he said, you know what? And someone asked the question, they were doing a Q&A session, they said, is it okay if I have a glass of wine with my wife? Something like that. And he looked and he said, you know what? I'm not going to tell you it's a sin to do that, but I'm going to tell you I don't. He said, because I come from a long line of alcoholics who one drink will mean drunkenness. And so for me, as a matter of conscience, I will tell you, I will never drink. I cannot drink. I would be the instant addict. He said, so I'm telling you, it's permissible for you, but not for me. And I think that was the contrast here that you need to see in the background here. There are some things which God just says, don't do it. There are some things that God says, this is a matter of right and wrong. And every person under this earth needs to repent of this. We call it sin, don't we? We call it sin. The things God unequivocally says, thou shalt not do. Or, or, or the sins we commit by not doing what God tells us we should do. So there's some things that the Bible, again, clearly delineates. And then there are matters of conscience. Matters of conscience. Things that are permissible for us, but that may not be wise for you to do either because of your own personal background or, or, or because of the environment that you're in, things that you're, are permissible, but things that might be very foolish for you to do. We call matters of conscience. You know, God doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that I can find, secular music is all bad. There's no verse that says, thou shalt not listen to you too. But for some of us, we might say, you know what? Every time I listen to 104.1, I'm troubled. Some people may say that in, in a very real, real way. And what do we do when you're in a situation like that where you're looking at other people and they feel like, and, and they, well, you're either looking at the scriptures and you say, there's no scripture that tells me I can't do this, but I'm bothered by doing it. Well, that's verse 5 in our text. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If your conscience bothers you when you do something, don't do it. If, if scripture, if your conscience allows it, and scripture allows it, more importantly, feel free to do it. He's saying, if your conscience bothers you, don't do it. If your conscience lets you do it, and it's not a sin, feel free. We've got to have that distinction between a matter of conscience and a matter of sin. And we see in this text that a matter of conscience quickly becomes a potential cause for division. Look at the specific commands in the passage. He says in verse 1, welcome the, the weak believers. Welcome them. Again, proving to us that it's not bad to be weak. 
Because if it was bad to be weak, I can't imagine Paul saying, hey, welcome. He says, welcome them, but not to quarrel. If it was bad to be weak, I think Paul would say, like he does elsewhere, welcome them and tell them how they're wrong. (laughs) Persuade them, convince them, enlighten them, help them. But he doesn't say that. He says, listen, you strong people, welcome the people that have a weak conscience, but not to quarrel, not to beat them over the head with a Bible, not to convince them that you're superior, not to convince them that, that they're weaker in the way that we think of weak. Welcome them, but don't make it your mission in life to beat them down and win them to your side. Let not the one who eats despise the one who disdains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Can you see the danger Paul's trying to avoid? He sees, okay, there's these gray areas that that one Christian is going to say, hey, I can do this and I'm going to do it. And another Christian is going to say, I can't do that. And Paul's saying, okay, it's a a matter of conscience, but a matter of conscience can quickly be kicked up a notch and become a cause for division. Because the strong people are going to be like, look at these weak brothers. What do they mean they can't do that? That's silly. Obviously, their faith is not very strong. And the weak ones... They're going to judge the other ones. Why? Because they're going to think, we're holier than they are. We're more committed than they are. Look at how loose they are in their faith. Look at how uncommitted they are in their faith. We've got a recipe for division. Easy recipe for division. And I see it all the time. You'll have two groups of parents talking. You'll have one parent group over here will be like, can you believe that they send their kids to public school? With all the things that are being taught in public school, how can they be okay with that? That's terrible. Clearly, they must not be committed to their child's holiness. And you can have another group of parents over here that say, can you believe that, you know, they homeschool their kids? Like, clearly they're not committed to evangelism, because if they were committed to teaching their kids about evangelism, they'd put their kids in public school so they'd have the chance to evangelize. So you got one side disdaining the other, one side judging the other, and they're both wrong. You know, you see it with Halloween. We're coming up on Halloween. You'll have one, one group of, one family will say, I can't believe that that person over there lets their kid go trick-or-treating. This is a pagan holiday. How can they let their kids celebrate a pagan holiday? Clearly, they're not committed to the Lord. And you'll have the other group over here being like, I can't believe that family over there doesn't celebrate Halloween. Gosh, this is like the one day a year where we have an excuse to knock on our neighbor's door and meet them in the hopes we can form a relationship through which the gospel will come. So one group thinks the other is not committed to evangelism. The other group thinks the other one's not committed to holiness. And they're both right and they're both wrong. It's a matter of conscience. Do you judge other people because they continue to listen to secular music? Do you disdain anyone that listens to anything that, you know, only listens to Christian music? Do you judge someone because they chose to read every Harry Potter book five times? And are you disdaining those whose conscience doesn't allow them to pick it up? They're both wrong. 
There are things in Scripture that are not a matter of right or wrong. They're a matter of conscience. And we cannot let conscience become elevated so much where we divide over it. And it's not because, you know, there are things worth dividing over in a church. There are. The Scripture gives us examples that we won't spend the time to go into at length. You know, the Scripture says that it's worth dividing over someone who teaches a false gospel. That's worth dividing over. It's, it's worth dividing over as someone who has professed faith in Christ and continues to live in repeated, habitual, unrepentant sin and never gets it together and never wants to get it together. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. It's worth dividing over them. But the church was never meant to be a homogeneous entity. The church was never meant to be the kind of place where we all look the same act the same, and embrace all the same matters of conscience. The church is called to be an assembly of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. People whom God has redeemed from every culture, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic status. The church is called to be an assembly of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different, different secondary values striving together for the cause of Christ and to advance his kingdom. It's not worth separating over matters of conscience. Father, we're reminded here of the right kind of judgment. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give of himself an account to God. It's so easy for us to judge and to look down on. And yet if we read this text, I think we're liable to come up in our culture with a false conclusion. I think if, you know... 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, I think if you ask the average person on the street, you walk downtown Fairfield, can you give me a verse in the Bible? I think they'd probably give you John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think if you go down to Fairfield, downtown Fairfield today and you're walking on the brick walk and you ask the average person for a verse, believer or unbeliever, they'd probably say, judge not, lest you be judged. We, we live in a culture today and here in this part of the hemisphere that we like the idea of not being judged. Who are you to tell me that what I think or what I believe is wrong? Hey, it says it in the Bible, don't judge. And so we're liable as we read this verse to say, right on! He says we, we can't pass judgment on our brother. We can't despise our brother. Okay. Let's pause a minute and reflect on that. He gives a clear command, don't pass judgment on your brother in Christ. Don't disdain your brother in Christ. So one may conclude that, well, based on that, you know, gosh, I can't tell someone that they're a believer, that they're wrong for dating an unbeliever, because I don't want to judge. I I can't tell another believer that it's wrong for them to get high. I don't want to judge. I can't tell a professed believer that, you know, homosexuality is wrong. I don't want to judge. I can't tell someone it's wrong to bully or to shame or to verbally assault someone. I don't want to judge them. Well, if we came away with that from this text, we're not really doing justice to what's going on there or to the rest of Scripture. So why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. 
you've you got your Bible on you, if you've got the one right in front of you, 1 Corinthians 5, I think we're going to look at these two in tandem very quickly. Because it's really easy to look here where he says, don't judge, and especially with our cultural backdrop, come out with a false, a false understanding, I think, of what he means. It's a long chapter. I'm going to read it because I think it's, it's, it's worth reading in this context. Paul's writing the church at Corinth. He says, quote, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. That's a statement in and of itself, isn't it? For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see the context there. Paul's saying, Someone slept with his stepmom or his mom, and you're proud. That's, that's what he's addressing. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we get these two verses. Let's almost five quick things about 1 Corinthians 5. First, Paul is calling the church to help each other to be holy. He doesn't expect it of themselves, they're going to have it all together. He seems to assume that of themselves, they're still going to struggle with sin. Hallelujah to that. I don't feel so out of place. So, so he says, first thing, hey, you, want, you need to be holy and you're going to need each other. Holiness is worked out in community, not in isolation from community. That's the first thing he says. Second thing, he's chastising and he's yelling at believers for sitting looking at other believers living in sin and just sitting by on the couch eating Twinkies. He's saying, you should care. Here's another person for whom the blood of Christ has been spilt. They've professed faith in Christ. They are, they are living in this sin that they are, again, contextually not repenting of. They're not saying, this is wrong, this is bad, I need help. They're just like, what's the big deal? And he's like, it's a very big deal. If you really love them, you're not just going to sit back and let them do that. That's not love. Third thing we see, he calls believers to separate from the other professed believer living in unrepentant sin. 
You know, we're hard. We're reminded of the difference between struggling with sin and living in sin. The difference between, I hate this, this thought I have, this action I've engaged in. I want to be free from this. That, that same disposition which first brought us to Christ. That, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Help me, Jesus. That's struggling with sin. Romans 7, we, we do that all day. Lord willing, that's the place we're in where we say, I need help. You know, I need help. I ask for God for help in prayer. I ask my small group for help. I ask my family for help. I ask my, my youth director, my pastor for help. I need help. That's struggling with sin. E- even, when, even if it's back, forward, back, forward, back, it's a heart condition. So remind, there's a difference between that and then what he calls here, the person who's living in sin. The person who says, what's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a sin. You don't understand. See, that's the problem. The problem with, with the person who says, I don't even want to acknowledge that I'm a professed believer, but I won't even acknowledge this is a sin. I won't even acknowledge that I have a problem. And I certainly won't look for or accept any help. That, we're reminded of the difference. Paul says, that latter person, you need to separate yourself from them. You need to stop being with them. By doing this, he's calling Christians to judge each other and call a spade a spade. Why? Because so far the casual, hey, hey, you know what? It, this is really not what God wants you to do, hasn't worked. And the only way that they're going to be made right with God is by giving them a dramatic example that this is a sin, this is unacceptable, and it will have repercussions. And he says, you know, when you, eventually you hit a place where you say, we've got to give a dramatic example. We've just got to stop being with this person. We've got to stop spending time with this person and tell them quite clearly why. And, and so the goal is not punishment. The goal is reconciliation with the Lord and with each other. But that can only happen after the purging. That's what he's saying. Fifth, he tells Christians quite clearly not to judge unbelievers. He says, judge believers, but don't, I don't judge unbelievers. He goes, I leave that to God. Rather intriguing. I think the problem with Christianity in America is that we do a great job at passing judgment on unbelievers. And we do a terrible job at passing judgment on each other. And so what we end up having is we have a, uh, we have a, a church that's not too holy criticizing a world that doesn't want to be holy the entire time appearing rightly as if we're a bunch of hypocrites. And so if, if, if we would just take his command at its value and say, well, we are to judge in the right context, but we're not going to judge the world, we'd have a holier, purer church that would reflect the light of the gospel more clearly to the world around it. So, so again, just to be clear, notice we have these two texts. Romans 14 telling us not to judge. 1 Corinthians 5 saying, judge other believers. Does the Bible contradict itself? No. Absolutely not. We've got two different backgrounds, to be clear. 1 Corinthians 5 is saying, judge professed believers who are living in unrepentant sin. Romans 14 is saying, don't judge believers who are acting out of a matter of conscience. Again, the difference between a matter of conscience and a matter of sin. Huge difference. If you can understand that difference... 
you can understand this passage, if you can understand that difference between conscience and sin, you'll get along with people better in a very real sense. You'll pick less fights. You'll point less fingers. But you'll do the ones that matter and that are worth it. If you stick around, we're going to talk more about that in small group afterwards. What's the, about what, what's the difference between conscience and sin? Stick around whether you're a teenager or you're an adult. You know, we meet like after the service. We'll talk about that issue more. It's worth talking about. Final point, he says, verse, he says, they ha- don't pass judgment for they have been welcomed by the Lord. Have you been welcomed by the Lord? The invitation has gone out. But have you responded? He says quite powerfully in verse 12, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he reminds us in the very end. That's, that's almost the most powerful verse that controls the entire 12 verses. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What will you stand on when you're there? Will you stand on your morality? On your church attendance? On the faith of your parents? Will you stand on, on the comparison between yourself and, and people you know and people you work with? Will you stand on your good intentions? What will you stand on? Will you stand on the precious blood of Christ? Will you stand on the blood of the Lamb who was slain in your place for your sins? He says, come to me, all you who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. The cry of Jesus has gone forth. The invitation has gone out. Have you responded to the welcome? Have you responded to the offer? Have you become ready for the day when every knee will bow, whether they want to or not? Where would you rather be in that day? bowing with joy the way you've bowed many other times in your life or gritting your teeth. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, but that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In his place, in our place, condemned he stood. We're all made for eternity. The only question is, where will we spend that eternity? Preaching the first sermon at Pentecost, people heard the gospel go forth. They heard this message, you are sinners in need of a Savior. You who weren't physically there killed Christ. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Acknowledge your need of a Savior. Surrender your life to Christ. Stop trying to trust in yourself and your own strength. Trust in the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Do not look at the cross and say, oh yes, there's this Jesus. He says he's the Savior. Say, I have come. He's not just the Savior. He is my Savior. He is my Savior. Say Jesus has saved me. I have trusted him. He has given me life. He's not just the the Savior. He is my Savior. Come forward and be able to say with assurance, 
My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Let today be the day where you place your faith in him that you may approach that judgment with joy and with confidence rather than fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you lived the life that we could not live, the perfect sinless life, and that you died the death that we deserve to die. I thank you, God, that because of that, you say if we have put our faith and trust in you, we can approach your throne of grace with confidence, with confidence and not fear. And God, I pray that you would help every one of us by the power of your spirit to approach it in just that way that you would melt away the fear and the trembling and that you would give us a right assurance by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.